great and wonderful love of God. That's going to, in fact, what we'll be talking about this morning. If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. We'll be continuing our series in the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. And uh, I just want to say I'm glad to be back with you this, this weekend. Uh, I was away last Sunday. Uh, I took some time with my family. We were on vacation. Uh, and vacation was good, but the old adage is true. There's no place like home, right? Uh, and so I'm glad to be back. And I'll say this. I think there's also no place like your home church. I'm glad to be back with you this morning and thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word together. Um, as we continue this study in the book of 1 John, we're looking at this idea. We're looking at the idea of a sure faith. How is it that we can know that we know Jesus? This is what John is writing about because there are people who have infiltrated the congregation that John helped plant. They're trying to uh, teach a different gospel. They're trying to teach different things about Jesus Christ. And as a part of that, they're raising questions like, do we really know God? Do we really have a a real relationship with him? Or maybe do these other people know the truth about God? And so John is writing and he's saying, look, here are some ways that you can rest assured. Here are some ways that you can know that you know. And he identifies uh, in very specific fashion some things that as believers, if we have a real active relationship with Jesus Christ, that are going to be present in our lives. And so one of those things that we've talked about already is this idea of loving others. That if I have a relationship with God and I'm filled with his love, one of the things that's naturally going to happen in my life, one of the things that's naturally going to come out of me is love for other believers, love for the members of God's family. Uh, Another thing that John talks about uh, in great detail is that if we really know Jesus, we will obey him. Why? Because you obey what you love. And so if I love Jesus Christ, then there's going to be evidence, there's going to be fruit that comes out of my life, not because I'm trying to perform, not because I'm trying to be religious, but because I love Jesus. And that's going to change and shape the way that I live. And so one of the things that I am uh, excited about this morning is we get to kind of focus on the foundation of those things this morning. We get to focus on God's great love for us. Uh, Very simply, that the Father's great love for us is what grounds us in our faith. That the Father's great love for you and me is the foundation. It's what grounds us. And if I understand that right, if I live inside of that truth, then I will do the things that God calls me to do. But if I get that out of order, then I cannot be the person God calls me to be. And in fact, I may not have a sure faith. I may be trying to perform, I may be trying to do good things, but I'm not actually living in faith. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning. And one of the the things that I think is really important as we uh, prepare to open this passage is the way that John talks about God. He calls him Father. He calls him Father. And one of the things that I believe is foundational to who we are as Christians is to know and believe and trust day after day after day that God is, in fact, a good Father. If I forget that God is good, then my relationship with God will absolutely be affected by that. If I forget that God is my father, then I won't relate to the holy creator of the universe in ways that that he desires that we do. He desires that we relate to him, not just with great respect, but also with a near and close and intimate love. God is not some God who is far off. God is a God who is near. God is a God who desires that his children be with him. And so we're going to be looking at that. Yes, he is holy, but Jesus repeatedly calls him my father in the New Testament. He doesn't just call him my father. Think about the Lord's Prayer. What are the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? 
our Father who art in heaven. See, for those of us that know him, for those of us that have a relationship with him, he is truly, in every sense of those two words, our Father. Psalm 103 tells us that, that the Lord has compassion on those who fear him as a father has compassion on his children. This is not a new idea. This is not a new concept. Even in the Old Testament, we are told to relate to God, to understand our relationship with God as our Father. So let's keep that in mind as we read in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You that You are our Father. God, we thank You that You love us with an unfailing love. God, thank You uh, for your word that, that is true and holy and perfect, and God, that it teaches us everything that we need, everything that is necessary to know you and to walk in right relationship with you. God, thank you that it's alive and active and powerful, that it changes lives, that it saves and redeems people from sin. And Lord, now as we open your word, God, we pray that, that you would open our hearts as well. God, we thank you that your word tells us where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you are there. And so, Lord, we recognize that you're present in this place. God, we ask that you would speak. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. And so the Father's great love is what grounds us in our faith. It's what settles us and keeps us fixed in him. Um, I want to read this poem to you this morning to get you started. I want to read a poem to you. Uh, it's a poem by Edgar Albert Guest. Uh, and the title is simply Father. And I think it's written in, an, in a lighthearted tone, but I just want you to listen to it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read a section of it. It says this, My father in a day or two could land big thieves in jail. There's nothing that he cannot do. He knows no word like fail. Our confidence he would restore, of that there is no doubt. But if there is a chair to mend, we have to send it out. All public questions that arise, he settles on the spot. He waits not till the tumult dies, but grabs it while it's hot. In matters of finance, he can, he can tell Congress what to do, but oh, he finds it hard to meet his own bills as they come due. It almost makes him sick to read the things lawmakers say, why father's just the man they need. He never goes astray. All wars he'd very quickly end as fast as I can ride it, but when a neighbor starts a fuss, tis mother who has to fight it. In conversation, father can do many wondrous things. He's built upon a wiser plan than presidents or kings. He knows the ins and outs of each and every deep transaction. We look to him for theories. We look to Ma for action. I like that poem. I think it's, it's a funny one. But as I've reflected on it and I've thought through it a little bit more, you know, the, the reality is this. It's actually a sad description of a father. It's actually not a happy circumstance that is described here. The man in the poem is a father, honestly, who would be very hard to follow. Because a man who can talk a good game... But when it comes down to being faithful, when it comes down to being a protector, when it comes down to being a provider and someone who's going to stand up, he's missing in action. You see, God has called fathers to live this way because ultimately this is to reflect, fathers are meant to reflect who he is 
And that is not the kind of father that God is. And thank God for that, right? Thank God that he is, in fact, a good father. He's a, a father who delivers on his promises. He's a father who is fearless and true. Thank God that he's a loving and forgiving father because every one of us falls short. Thank God that he doesn't hold our sins against us for those of us that know him. Thank God that we don't just look to him for theories. We can look to our God for action. He moves. He works. He's present. And so John says to us this morning in verse 1, he says that very first word, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's saying, look, pay attention. Don't miss this. Don't just breeze past this. Because for those of us that have grown up in church, I think it's all too easy. From the day that, that perhaps we even walk through the doors, we sing a song that goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? We hear it over and over and over again that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. And if we're not careful, what happens is that we begin to understand and know that God loves us here but we don't let that truth penetrate to here. And if we fail to do that, we will not relate to God well. We will not relate to him as a child should to his father. And so this morning, the thing I want to challenge you to do, and what we're going to unpack and spend the most of our time is in verse 1, that we should ground ourselves in the father's love for us. That you and I need to be reminded regularly and often of God's great love towards you and towards me through his son, Jesus Christ. That he is a good father and that he does not fail. So we must ground ourselves in the Father's level. How can we do that? I think one of the, the best ways to do that is to consider this idea of adoption because uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about how we become uh, brought into God's family, it is through the process or the picture of adoption that we are brought into God's family and we are adopted children of God, that we get to be brothers and heirs of God's family with Jesus Christ. But to appreciate this privilege of adoption, I think we have to remember really who we were before we were adopted. Because for each of us that know Jesus, there was a time when we did not. There was a time when we did not have a relationship with the king of the universe. There was a time when we did not have this good father. I was 25 years old. I was a youth pastor in Texas, and um, it was the fall. We were actually uh, having our fall festival at this church in Texas, a, a larger church near the freeway, and uh, we had it outside on the uh, parking lot. And there were probably over 1,000 people that night that actually came out uh, and were a part of this fall festival on the parking lot, and it was going really well. Things were really good. Uh, looked like a, a kind of a big success until about halfway through the night, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye. Again, 25 years old, I'm not a father yet. I notice there's this little girl, and she is standing in the crowd. And uh, the crowd was so tight, it was so full, you, you could hardly step any direction and, and not bump into someone. But she was standing there, and she was frozen. And she was doing this. She was twisting her head back and forth very quickly. And I noticed the little girl's face, and I'll never forget her face. It was a face of panic and fear. And suddenly she began to shriek one word, Daddy! Daddy! And I remember watching this little girl, and, and at first, again, not being a father and not knowing how to console a little girl, I thought, well, he'll show up real quickly. I'm going to watch and see what happens. Except Dad didn't come, and the girl got more and more panicked. And so then I knew I was the youth pastor at the spot. I had to take action, and it shocked me that no one else did. It shocked me no one stopped to help this little girl. She was probably, I don't know, four or five at the time. 
And so I knelt over to her and very awkwardly, uh, not knowing what to do or say, just kind of said, hey, little girl, uh, I'm here to help. Don't be scared. And she's, she's screaming and crying. And uh, eventually I got her to calm down a little bit and she shared with me that her name was Lizzie and she had lost her dad. And so we began to search for her father together. And after 15 minutes, uh, we still had not found her father. 20 minutes went by, I still had not found her father. It felt like an eternity. And then it dawned on me, oh yeah, there's a stage over here with a microphone. Why don't we walk over here and that might be helpful. So we went over there, made the announcement, and sure enough, her father comes forward. Uh, And that story had a happy ending. But the little girl's name, as I said, was uh, Lizzie. And I'll never forget that look on Lizzie's face because I think it describes perfectly who we are before we know Jesus. The word on her face was lost. You see, no one who knows me is here. No one who loves me. There's no one to protect me. There's no one to come and get me and take me home. There's no one. Help. She was lost. Friends, this is who we are apart from Jesus Christ, apart from a saving relationship with our good heavenly Father. We're lost. A lost child is fearful, but God's Word tells us that perfect love drives out fear. 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. Friends, that's not good love. It's not strong love. It's not adequate love. It's perfect love. God's unfailing perfect love is available to his children every moment of every day, regardless, this is scandalous, friends, but it's regardless of performance. God loves you if you know him because he doesn't look at you. He looks at the reflection of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at the perfect sinless blood of Jesus and knows that you're covered, that you're clean, that you're holy because of what Jesus has done for you. We have perfect love. A lost child is helpless, but God's love makes us strong. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul tells us that we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Why? Because we know our Father, because we know Jesus Christ, because He is literally dwelling inside of us, and it's not just us walking through life on our own. A lost child is separated but God's love draws us near. James 4.8, I love James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's a wonderful promise to God's children. You see, the, the beautiful thing, friend, if you're here today and you feel that you're far from God, here's the, the great promise of James 4.8. It's not God who moved. It's not God who wandered off. He's there. He's always been there. He'll always be there. It's you. You just simply turn back to him. You go back to your father and you are instantly restored into right relationship with him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the wonderful promise of a loving father whose love never fails. A lost child is insecure, but God's love grants unwavering peace. Paul describes it in Philippians 4, 7 as the peace that passes understanding. The peace that passes understanding. What is that? What is the peace that passes understanding? The other day, Tara was chopping some food on a plate in our house. And she wasn't using a cutting board. She was actually using a plate. I don't know why. I'm not going to ask why. But she's chopping the food. And as the knife would come down on the plate, it would make this very loud clang sound. Clang! And I'm watching TV in the den, kind of right there in the, in the room. And little John is on the floor. He's not one yet. He's crawling. But he hears that clang And it was not a happy moment. He jumps a mile up and he begins to scream and cry, right? He begins to cry. And what does he do? He begins to crawl as fast as he can towards me. I pick him up. 
And Tara's not done chopping. She continues to chop the food. And so at first he's screaming and he's crying and he's upset. And then the knife falls again, clang, and he jumps a little bit. And the knife falls again, clang. This time he stopped crying. Knife falls again, clang. It's like he doesn't even see it. He doesn't even know it. Why? Because he knew, I don't know what's going on over there. It's kind of scary to me. But guess what? Daddy has me. And friends, let me tell you, the peace that passes understanding is knowing your daddy has you. It's knowing that your good and strong and able father is going to protect you. You may not understand what's going on. You may not understand why hardship has entered your life. You may not understand how it's all going to work out in the end. But you know this, daddy's got me and he's going to make it okay one way or the other. That's the peace that passes understanding. That's the privilege of being a child of God. That's the joy that you and I have. It's not only that. The peace that passes understanding is also visible from the outside looking in. You see, a lost world watches a child of God. And as the child of God walks through difficulty and they walk through pain and suffering and sorrow and separation, they watch that child of God to see how will they respond? What's going to happen in the life of this person? You see, as, as children of God, we still grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, and even as we walk through hardship, we walk through sorrow, we exude and demonstrate, oftentimes not even purposefully, because we can't produce it ourselves. God does it in us. We produce hope. We produce a peace that is visible to the outside world. And what happens is a lost world sees that child of God, and they say, how is that possible? How is it that you can walk through grief like this and not be crushed? How can you do that? It's because... Your daddy has you, and it's because you have the peace that passes understanding. It is a beautiful witness to a lost world. And so to be adopted as a child of God, friends, I could spend the rest of the afternoon unpacking the privileges that come with that. But I want us to see the gift that we've been given in adoption. I want us to see what what John is saying when he says, See, look, see what kind of love you have. See what God has done for you. Don't forget that. Stop and remember that. Meditate on that. Let that change your perspective. See what God has done for you. See how he loves you. But not only is adoption an incredible gift that's to be cherished, we must remember adoption is beautiful, but it's not practical. Adoption is beautiful, but it's not practical. The average U.S. adoption today costs between $35,000 and $40,000. Okay? We're not talking about food. For the rest of the, top, the time that you have the child, we're not talking about clothing. We're not talking about education. We're not talking about anything, toys, anything that's going to come as a part of raising that child. We're simply talking about getting the child from a place where, as we read, no one cares, no one knows, no one loves, no one sees, to a place where they have a home. They have a place where they are seen and known and loved. And it costs somewhere between thirty-five dollars and $40,000. Friends, adoption is costly. But here's the deal. Adoption hasn't just always been costly in dollars to Americans. Friends, adoption is always costly. To take a child who's not a member of your family and to bring them into a home and give them a place to stay and live and to integrate them as yours is emotional, time-consuming, painstaking work. It's not easy, but it's good. It's not practical, but it's beautiful. It's a good thing. And friends, this is what God has done for you and for me. God has paid an infinitely high cost that we might be forgiven and then brought into the family of God. That we might be called his children. And so we are, as John tells us. 
But all too often, friends, you and I choose not to follow Jesus. We choose not to live by faith. We choose not to walk the way that he commands. Why? I think it's because loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, spending hours in prayer and reading God's word, fasting, and allowing church to cost us more than our tithe and and investing in others and serving. You see, all those things simply aren't very practical. And so we don't always follow. But here's the thing. When Jesus was walking up Calvary's hill, and as he was having nails driven through his hands and feet, I don't think he was concerned about being practical. I think he was preoccupied with a perfect and holy and righteous love for those that would turn, for those that would follow him, for those that would know him and be his children forever. This is what we've been given, not just a practical love, but a beautiful, unchanging, fearless love that never ends and never fails. This is what a good father looks like. Thank you. Amen. Absolutely. John is saying to us this morning, can you see it? Can you see it? What love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called His children. It's displayed in in bruises. It's displayed in lashes. It's displayed in nail-driven hands that you and I would be called children of God, and we really are if we know Him. This is what grounds us in our faith. This is what makes us firm, immovable, unshakable. But I want to share with you then two results that come from this. As we embrace God's great love for us, as we accept it and live inside of that truth. What happens? Paul, I mean, excuse me, John outlines um, two things, two, I guess, results, or another way to look at it is fruit. Fruit of knowing the great love of God. Number one is that knowing God's great love makes us strangers in this world. Knowing God's great love makes us strangers in this world. Look at uh, the back half of verse one with me. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, uh, John's saying something really important here. Human history is the long, terrible story of mankind trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. C.S. Lewis said that. Since the beginning of time, people literally have been willing to do anything for happiness. It's the condition that we're born into. It's what we have. Um, a way that I saw this in my own life was uh, I relate to the, the people that are going through these, these terrible storms, these terrible hurricanes that are happening, it seems like, every week now in our country. Um, I went through Hurricane Katrina in South Mississippi. And as I walked through that time, we were living in Hattiesburg, and, and actually uh, I was displaced by that storm. Uh, my apartment was destroyed. But one of the things that happened as people um, began to get more desperate because they were without power and without a lot of resources for an extended period of time, uh, where we were, it was about three to four weeks, I believe. Uh, As people grew more desperate, you could see this truth. People were searching for relief. They were searching for happiness and that they would do anything to get that happiness. In Hattiesburg, it was published in a newspaper, uh, the National Guard came in and they were passing out ice. They're passing out ice to people who needed some relief and some help. And so they only had so much. And obviously the crowd was larger than the amount that they could carry into town. And uh, a tragedy happened. As they began to run out of ice, a woman shot and killed her own brother to get a bag of ice because he got the last bag and he wasn't going to share it. You see, friends, 
When we say, and when I say to you this morning, people will do anything for happiness, people really will do anything for happiness. Thousands of years ago, there were entire temples dedicated to gods of sex. They were filled with prostitutes. Make no mistake, friends, the sexual revolution that our nation has gone through and continues to experience the effects of today is not revolutionary. In fact, it's very old. Worshiping sex as the greatest form of satisfaction is as old as sin itself. It's not new. Thousands of years ago, people sacrificed and ate food as an act of worship. As one of the most obese nations on the planet, let me ask you this morning, what is it do you think we worship in America? Thousands of years ago, people went to war for wealth and riches and fame. Today, many Americans will sacrifice their marriages and their families on the altar of wealth and fame and success. You see, we have always been searching for other things to make us happy. But the child of God is able to see that these promises are empty promises. They're not good. They don't last. They won't satisfy. They're broken cisterns. You see, the thing about that lady, the great tragedy, she never got to get that ice because she was arrested and taken to jail. The great tragedy is even if she had gotten that ice, even if she had gotten that relief, how long would that ice have lasted? It's a few short minutes. Friends, the treasures that we hold on to, the things that that we say, Lord, I'll give you this, but I don't want to give you that. It's just like that ice. It's only going to last a few short minutes. And this life will be done. This life will be over. What will you have to show for what you've held on to? This is how we begin to look like strangers in the world. This is how we begin to stand out. Those of us that know Jesus Christ, we look at those empty promises and we say, no more will I live for that. No more will I pursue that. No more will those lies hold their power over me. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live his way. I'm going to follow him. And in so doing, we begin to look very different. Jesus said it this way. I don't think we like to reflect on this very often. He said that no servant is greater than his master and that if the world rejected him, guess what? It will reject us too. And that if we are going to follow him, friends, that means very clearly there's a cost associated with Jesus. There's a very clear cost associated with following Jesus closely. Listen to me. Salvation is free. We are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We did not earn it. We will not earn it. We cannot earn it. But following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus day in and day out, day after day after day, will will make sure will guarantee that you must lay things down. We must lay things down to follow him. And so the question to examine our hearts in this area, to see, child of God, are you buying some sort of lie somewhere, is very simply this question. Is there anything in my life that if God took it from me today that would make me angry at him? If God took something in my life from me, whether it was my job, whether it was my health, whether it was a loved one, if God took that from me and I'm angry at him, Perhaps it's possible that I'm holding on to that thing a little too closely. There should be nothing that we will not lay at the foot of the cross. There should be nothing that we will not drop in order to be near to this great and good Heavenly Father who loves us. And so I think one of the things then that we have to understand is if following Jesus becomes costly, if it's guaranteed to be difficult and costly, what is it that mature Christians know? What is it that mature Christians who have laid things down and gladly lay things down to follow him, what is it that they know that we don't? You see, Paul said it this way, for to me, to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. He said, I count all things as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ, compared to walking with him, to knowing him. You see, to know God clearly and to know him closely is to know this. This is the secret. It's a very simple one. It's to know that God is better. And then fill in the blank. God's better than anything that this world can offer. God is better than anything that this world can afford. It's not that I don't care for my family. It's not that I don't care for my job. It's not that I don't take care of myself and, and, and do my best with my health, but it's that I understand those things eventually will fade. But the love of my Father endures. The love of my God will never fail. And so I hold him up. I see him as better. I understand that he, his riches really are richer, and so I'm not going to hold these things too closely. A hymn that I love says it this way. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Listen to this, listen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth... They will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, when we see Jesus for who he is, suddenly our hope shifts. We don't hope in this world anymore, and that makes us stand out and look strange, and we will have to lay things down to follow him. But guess what, friends? He's better. He's worth it. And so it's okay. I can hold on to my strong dad as I endure whatever this life throws at me. That is our hope, and that's what verse 2 is really saying to us. Look at verse 2 with me. Beloved, we are God's children now. There it is, that relationship again. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What is he talking about there? What he's saying to us is that our hope is Jesus. He's saying, he's talking about the end of time. He's talking about as this world does fade away, What's going to happen to us? And he says very plainly, he says the truth. We don't know exactly what we're going to look like. We do know that we're going to have redeemed heavenly bodies. We do know that we're going to be in perfection with God Almighty for the rest of eternity. We do know that there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more shame, no more tears, no more suffering. We do know these things are true, but exactly what will be, exactly how that's going to look, we don't know exactly. And here's what he is saying. That's okay. That's okay. Why? Because we're going to be with Jesus. When he appears, we're going to be with him. We're going to be like him. And here's the thing. For those of us that really know Jesus, for those of us that really have a relationship with him, at the end of the day, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to be with him whenever this this whole thing is over and this world passes away. I just want to know and be with Jesus because that's where it's going to be best. That's where it's going to be okay. That's where I'm going to be safe. And that's where my daddy's going to be. And I want to be there. And so he's saying, don't worry about that. Look, we're dust. We are dust. The promise, the curse is from dust you were taken to dust you will return. This life is short. This life is fleeting. Do not love it too closely. In our modern world, we have medicine. We have incredible technology. We have comfortable things that, that oftentimes give us this lie that we're meant to be here forever and ever and ever. And the truth is we're dust. From dust we came, to dust we will return. And so we must keep our eyes focused on our good and heavenly Father. But when we do that, we begin to look like strangers. Lastly, the, the last result, that's the first result, that we will be strangers as we follow Jesus. The second result is in verses, uh, excuse me, verse 3. Verse 3. 
God's great love creates in us a desire for purity. A desire for purity. See verse 3. It says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purity is the gateway to living intimately with God. The entirety of the Old Testament points to this. When we look at the Old Testament, what did God's children have to do in the Old Testament over and over and over and over again to be able to enter into his presence? What is it? They had to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because God was shouting at them, you cannot and will not be in my presence because of your sin. I am a holy and righteous God. I am a good God. And because I am holy and righteous and good, I will not compromise. I will not allow sin into my presence. And so there's a cost that is associated with sin. The wages of sin is death. And so in the Old Testament, God's children had to repeatedly offer lambs, goats, bulls, doves, in bloody and often probably gruesome sacrifice. Why? Because what is happening as they place that animal on the altar, they're being reminded, this should be me. This should be me. This should be me. All pointing to the one day that God would send the perfect lamb. All pointing to the best day, good Friday. It's called good for a reason, that God would send his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life because Jesus would stand in our place that he would take on our sin for us so that we can be pure and we can be restored into a right relationship with God. And so here's the deal. What John is saying is everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. Why? Not because we're trying to be religious, not because we're trying to, to be better than thou or holy rollers or any of those sorts of things, but very simply because I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to the thing that cost Jesus his life I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt my Savior that way. I see it as ugly. What once was beautiful to me is now filthy rags. The Proverbs describes it this way. It says that a, a fool will return to his folly or a sinner will return to his sin as a dog returns to his vomit. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of seeing that. <laughs> it's not a pretty picture right? That's not a pleasant thing, but here's the deal. The image is real. The image is true. When we turn back to our sin, it is a disgusting and wicked thing because it's not who we are anymore. It's not who God's made us to be. It's not why he saved us. He saved us and set us free from that because those things lead to death. And so if we understand that and we really believe that and we see clearly God's great love for us, then why would I ever go back? I'd have to be crazy. And so this is who we are. This is what we're given. This is the results of knowing our good and heavenly Father. I want to ask you this morning, friend, do you see God's great love for you today? Do you see it? Do you remind yourself regularly of how good it is and how much you've been given or are we apt to walk through life and difficulty comes and we say, why me, God? Why me that this other hardship would come? Why me that these things would be this way and not this way? Why me? I think the, the right question we should ask should be, why me? God, why me that you would die for me? Why me that I would get to live in a nation where I can come and worship you and, and not 
worry about persecution? Why me? Why me that I would have the many, many, many endless blessings that you give me each and every day? Why me? You see, friends, we have been given an extravagant love from a good Father. And so as we come now, and we come to this time where we're about to enter into the Lord's Supper, I just want to ask you, are you a stranger in this world? Are you marked by a desire for purity? That you live in a way that says, I don't want to live in this sin anymore. I want to be separated, not because I'm better, but because Jesus is. I want to go ahead and ask you to bow your heads this morning for just a moment. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just think about this. If Perhaps you're here today and you don't know this Father. You don't know this good Father that I'm describing. Perhaps you're, you're here today and you're lost. Friend, I want you to know that even where you sit this morning, God is mighty and powerful to save and that if you will turn from your sin, you will cry out.